The next reading comes from Acts chapter 4 as we continue our series in the book of Acts. You'll recall last week uh, in the story that Peter healed the lame beggar and that he walked and the people were astonished by it and uh, Peter took them when they came to him and the disciples. Um, he explained to them by whose power uh, the healing had taken place. That's has just happened. <clears throat> Picking up the story in verse 1 of chapter 4. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in jail till the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander and others of the high priest's family. And they had Peter and John brought to them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing that they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them not to speak, to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. After further threats, they let them go. They couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. 
For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God in in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations raise and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against you and your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Thanks, Peter. Uh, As Peter said, we're continuing our series in Acts and so we're going to spend a moment now, well, a bit more than a moment, uh, reflecting a bit more on that second Bible reading from Acts chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles there with you, it'd be great if you could have them open so you can follow along as I'm speaking about it. But let's, let's pray again as we reflect on God's Word a little more. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your Spirit works uh, among us even today, and we particularly pray now that your Spirit, who caused these words to be written, Uh, will so work in our hearts and minds to understand, to trust what you have to say to us, Um, and particularly today that he will be working in us to give us a conviction and a boldness to be willing to speak about Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Uh, I wonder if you're at all like me in that I often find it hard to get the courage to kind of stick my neck out and speak about Jesus, particularly if I think that if I do, it's going to get kind of chopped at. It can be hard to get the courage to do it. I remember years ago, I was helping to run a a Christian group on campus at the University of Western Sydney, and one of the things that we used to do each year was that on orientation day, at the beginning of the year, we'd go along to the orientation day with the purpose of meeting first-year students who were about to start at uni to ask if any of them would want to uh, find out about Jesus or to study the Bible while they were at uni, while they're, as they're enrolling. Now, that was a reasonably kind of in- intimidating thing to do, but it went okay and we did it. What was far more intimidating was what happened after orientation day one year. That is, the university called a meeting of all the people who were involved in uh, running uh, you know, religious groups or who are chaplains on the campus, and they sent along one of their administrators with the explicit purpose, really, to rebuke and lecture everyone who had been involved in doing what we were doing on campus that day. And to begin with, she wanted to know, who was it? You know, of all the people sitting in the room now, who was it who was there doing that stuff on that day? 
And that was a fairly intimidating moment, a fairly intimidating situation, this kind of stern-looking woman demanding uh, to know who had been doing this. It kind of felt like a school principal kind of busting the students. And, and so she's saying, she literally saying, you know, put your hand up if that was you. And slowly, a few people around the room who'd been involved in it put their hands up. I didn't. And I remember kind of trying to justify myself at the time for not putting my hand up. You know, I wasn't really that involved at the time. I wasn't organising it. That wasn't the campus that I was particularly involved in. But the fact is, I was just nervous. You know, I was, I was feeling intimidated by that situation of, of, of kind of standing out as, as being one of those people who'd, who'd been doing that. And I guess my lack of courage in that moment has stuck with me ever since. But, you know, the, the fact is that wasn't a one-off. That wasn't the only time that I have not been bold to kind of stick my neck out and I'd be identified as someone who stands for Jesus. That wasn't the only time that I've kind of ducked when I should have stood up. The only time when I have kept quiet when I should have spoken. Because as I'm sure you know, being bold to speak about Jesus is not always easy. And now most of the time it's not in kind of those, those big forums, those big situations where that might happen. More often it's you know, around the dinner table with family. Or it's you know, in, the, in the break room at work with colleagues. Or when we're out with friends or you know, at school with friends. The opportunities to speak about Jesus aren't that hard to come across. What is more hard is taking those opportunities and actually speaking when the moment comes. And, you know, a lot of the book of Acts that we're studying at the moment is about speaking about Jesus. And as I've been reading through it, it's become increasingly my prayer that Acts will be for us, I guess, kind of a rallying call for all of us, myself included, that it will encourage us to be people who are keen and willing to stick our neck out and speak about Jesus, that it will stir in us a desire and a conviction and a boldness to actually want to identify ourselves as followers of Jesus and to speak about him. And I think Acts 4 that we're looking at now helps us kind of get started in thinking about that. And Peter has helpfully given us a bit of background in, in pointing out for us that Acts chapter 4 is really part 2 of what we looked at last week in Acts chapter 3. In fact, it's, it's the same day and in fact the same moment. So Peter and John have just healed a, a lame beggar and then spoken to the people about how the power to, for that healing has come from Jesus. And, it, and it's while they were still speaking about these things that the authorities from the temple came and arrested them and threw them into prison. And they spent the night in prison and then they dragged them before the assembled rulers of Israel, the Sanhedrin, and demand that they give an account for what they have been doing and saying. So that's the situation that these guys are in. And the first kind of point, the first thing that we're going to see as we look at their response and them in the situation, the thing that we're going to notice is that if we speak about Jesus, we will face opposition. If we speak about Jesus, we will face opposition. Now, as I say that, I reckon you're probably thinking, yeah, I already know that. 
We're already pretty aware of that. But I think it's important for us to get that clear in our minds that opposition is normal and it's not a sign that something has gone wrong in, in our kind of endeavours to speak about Jesus. And it's not like Peter and John did a bad job of talking about Jesus that day. You know, I sometimes think, and maybe you do too, that when I get a bad reaction for speaking about Jesus, that it's because I've done it badly. You know, I've, I've, I've not spoken correctly about it. I've, I've just been you know, accidentally offensive or not been clear or something. If it blows up in my face, it's because I've, I've done it wrong. And, and so I think, well, I'm obviously not very good at that. I'm not going to do that again. And maybe that's sometimes why things go badly when we speak about Jesus, but it's certainly not what happened in this case. In fact, in this case, you notice that the very same speaking, the very same message, produced two completely different responses. And we get them mentioned right next to each other in verses 3 and verse 4. So in verse 3, Peter and John are arrested and thrown in prison for what they're saying. And in verse 4, we get told that thousands of people put their trust in Jesus because of what they were saying. So the same message, thousands of people trusting in Jesus, but other people are so enraged about what they were saying that they arrested the speakers and threw them into prison. Those two groups of people didn't hear two different messages. They heard the same thing. But that one message produced two completely different responses. And I think that kind of difference, that comparison, helps us to recognise that the negative reaction is just as much a normal response to speaking about Jesus as the positive one is. It's not like something went wrong when the negative reaction happened. This wasn't just an off day for Peter as he was speaking. It wasn't an evangelism fail because you know, look how badly it went, he obviously did it wrong. It's just an example of the kind of thing that happens when we speak the truth about Jesus, that even the best speaking can produce a negative response, that is opposition and persecution. And that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. It was true back then and it's still true today. And I think this, as I said before, is where it's important that we get our expectations right. That if we speak about Jesus, we will face opposition. Because I think if you're anything like me in this regard, you might be living with a contradiction. That is, yes, I want to be someone who speaks about Jesus. But also, I don't want trouble. I don't want people to dislike me. I don't want to have persecution. But those two actually don't go together. One of them is going to fail. One of those two expectations are not going to happen. We can't expect to have a comfortable, trouble-free life and at the same time think that somehow I'm miraculously still going to be someone who speaks about Jesus. They just don't go together. And so I guess the question we've got to ask ourselves is which one of those am I going to give up on? Am I going to you know, have a trouble-free life or am I going to be a person who speaks about Jesus? Because opposition and even persecution is a normal response to speaking about Jesus. And I think those two, those two different reactions highlight that for us. Now, of course, 
we still need to make sure that we are speaking in a way that is loving and helpfully communicated and true. You know, there might be some times when the bad reaction is because we are not doing it well, so we need to be loving and helpfully communicated and true. And so if we want to be people who are speaking about Jesus, we should get training and practice. But I think what we're talking about here is even more kind of fundamental, getting our expectations right. Because we can have all the right words to say, all the kind of right training, but if our main goal is for people to like what we have to say, or perhaps better, to like us, if that's our main goal, then we probably will never speak. And so we need to make sure that we're not kind of kidding ourselves about what speaking about Jesus involves. We will face opposition if we speak about Jesus. So that's our first point. Once we've got that expectation right, what will actually motivate us so that we are bold to speak about Jesus? Because if we're convinced that that could lead to opposition, we need boldness to actually speak if that's what's going to happen. We need boldness. That's how Peter and John are described here in verse 13. They're described as courageous. In verse 29, boldness is what they pray for. In verse 31, that's how God answers their prayer. They are filled with the Spirit and speak the Word of God boldly. So the question I'm asking now is, what will give us that boldness to speak? And I think, in one word, the answer is conviction. Conviction. And I think there are kind of three aspects of conviction that we see in Peter and John in this passage. Conviction that it's true, that the message that we have about Jesus is true. Jesus really did rise from the dead. Conviction that it's important, you know, that it really matters. There is salvation in no other name but Jesus. And thirdly, conviction that God is greater than any opposition that we might face. And so I just want to speak to those three points of conviction for a moment now. So firstly, conviction that the message is true. That conviction is what we see in Peter's boldness in this chapter. He is convinced about Jesus. And that really is the the foundation of his boldness. And you might remember, if you're at all familiar with Peter's story, that boldness in standing up for Jesus is not exactly at the top of Peter's resume at this point in his life. So far in Peter's career, I guess you could say, in following Jesus, the most significant thing that has happened for him was denying that he even knew Jesus. Not just once, but three times. Just a few weeks earlier, on the night that Jesus um, was arrested, Peter said, I don't know him. I've never met that man. I do not know what you are talking about. Denial was the most significant thing that Peter had done. But now, this same man, just a few weeks later, is standing up and boldly speaking about Jesus. And in the face of significant opposition, and almost to kind of highlight the the difference between Peter back then and Peter now, notice how similar the situation is between back then and now when, when Jesus was arrested. Peter and John are on trial in the very same spot that Jesus was on trial probably in the very same room. They are being tried by the very same people that Jesus was tried by, the Sanhedrin, the rulers of the Jews. 
And they've been arrested for pretty much the same reason that Jesus had been arrested. The authorities did not like the claims about Jesus, whether they're being made by Jesus himself or by his followers, someone else. It's the same reason. Same place, same people, same problem. And Peter and John must have been thinking they are heading for the same sentence. Was this the moment when Peter and John were also going to be executed? Were they going to be crucified like Jesus was? Imagine how intimidating and and scary this must have been for them. But this time, Peter's response could not have been more different than the denial that he had a few weeks earlier. They've been told to never speak about Jesus again, but listen to Peter's response in verse 19. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. This is the same Peter. You know, back then he didn't need any encouragement to stop speaking about Jesus. But now everything has changed. And when I say everything has changed, one thing really has changed. That is, Jesus has risen from the dead. Now Peter knows that Jesus is the risen and victorious king and nothing can stand against him. Peter knows that is true and that makes all the difference for him. And this conviction is what gives him boldness to speak about Jesus in front of the very men who sentenced him to death. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now, obviously, we haven't seen and heard literally Jesus risen from the dead like Peter and John had. But that doesn't make it any less true. That doesn't mean that we can be any less sure or convicted of the certainty of it. And so I guess it's worth asking ourselves at this point whether we do have this conviction. And it's occurred to me, I've noticed over time, that sometimes people can hang around churches for a long time without really asking ourselves, do I really believe that this happened? Do I really believe that this is true? And it's wonderful to have people in the building who are not sure about that. But what I would say about that is make sure that you find out and because this needs to be the ground of our conviction that it is actually true. Because if it is true, it changes everything. It's that important. Which brings us to the second conviction that Peter had, that the message is important. People need to hear this message, Peter says, because there is no other way to be saved. Verse 12, he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. See, these guys are on trial here, possibly for their very lives, but Peter is kind of just treating it like it's another opportunity to tell people about Jesus, you know, to the people that are trying him. And I can imagine if I was in a situation like that, My number one priority would be, how do I get out of this trouble? What can I say to defend myself? I remember years ago, back in my engineering days, my work sent me to to work in um, China for an extended period of time. And before I went, I had a friend of mine who was from China, who was a Christian, who said to me, just be careful about what you say while you're over there and also particularly what you 
write in your emails because the government might be listening and you could get yourself into trouble, particularly what you say about Jesus. And that was you know, a fairly intimidating thing to hear as you're heading over, over there. Now, I didn't end up getting into trouble with the government, but I can imagine that if I did, my number one goal would be, well, how do I get myself out of this trouble? But Peter is not concerned to save his skin. He's concerned to save his hearers. He knows that that can only happen through Jesus, and so he tells them about it. There is no other way to be saved except through Jesus. Now, that's not a very popular message. It was no more popular back then than it is today. And for them, the stakes were much higher. Why would you say that? Unless you were convinced that it is true and important. And again, I think this is where our motivation for boldness to speak needs to come from. Because increasingly, I think the the culture around us is, is telling us what we need to believe about what we believe. And that is, your faith is only relevant for you. And it's only relevant for you if you want it to be, and as much as you want it to be. In fact, it's unkind and unloving to tell someone else about it unless they really want to hear it. So we shouldn't bother people with it. I wonder if that's what I actually believe about the message of Jesus, that I shouldn't tell people about it because it's unkind and unloving. And in fact, my faith is only relevant for me personally. It's a personal preference, like, you know, what footy team do you go for? It doesn't matter for other people. Not offending other people is more important. Is that what, is that what I believe? Or do I believe that people need to hear it and that it's even worth kind of ruffling some feathers maybe so that they can hear it? because this is the only way that they can be saved. It's that important. Because if we don't have that conviction, again, why would we speak about it? But if we do have that conviction, then it should help us to be bold, to be bold in those times when we would rather kind of duck. That's our second conviction. The third and final conviction that Peter and the other believers uh, demonstrate here is that God is greater than any opposition they might face. And you see that in the prayer that the believers pray after Peter and John are arrested from verse 25 onwards. So you see from verse 25, they read or they speak from Psalm 2, which is about how the superpowers of the world, the kings and rulers of the world, oppose God's Messiah. But God's response to that is to laugh. God laughs at that opposition because their opposition is useless because God has put his king on his throne and no one can change that. No one can stand against him. It's easy, I think, for us, isn't it, to be intimidated by intimidating people, whether it's physically intimidating or socially intimidating, the power, the influence, the opinions of the people around us. And sometimes we can feel as if the truth about Jesus is decided by the argument around a dinner table where everyone is kind of opposed to us or an opinion piece that we might read in the paper or a a YouTube video that we watch. That can be intimidating to have that kind of opposition to what we believe, but none of that actually changes anything about Jesus. It doesn't affect God at all. God laughs at that kind of opposition. 
And that kind of opposition that we face is nothing compared to the opposition that Jesus faced. They killed him. But even that couldn't stop Jesus. God raised him to life again. No one is going to defeat God's king. Not even death can do that. And so I guess we need to be confident that no amount of popular opinion that is against us is going to make the eternal rule of Jesus untrue. It doesn't take Jesus off his throne. And knowing that with certainty should give us boldness like Peter and John and the other believers had after their first brush with persecution. So they were convicted that the message of Jesus is true, that it's important, and that God is greater than any opposition they might face. That was their conviction that gave them boldness. But there's one final and I think quite important thing that we need to notice right at the end before we finish, and it's this, that boldness is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we need to pray for it. And that's exactly what the disciples do at the end. Despite their conviction, the threats were still intimidating. They weren't you know, immune to the, the scariness of those threats. So they prayed for boldness. Verse 29, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And God answered that prayer in verse 31. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So no matter how convicted we are, it doesn't mean that it's going to get easy necessarily. So we should pray for boldness. And this is something that I started doing a while ago and I, I recommend it. When I'm going to meet with some friends, or when I'm going to have lunch or, some, or dinner with a friend, Lord, please help me to speak boldly about Jesus. Please help me not to shrink back when that opportunity arises, but to take the opportunity. When you're seeing family during the week, Lord, give me boldness to speak about Jesus. Or I'm going to bump into that friend at work this week. Lord, give me boldness to speak to them about Jesus. You know, I certainly don't claim to have all the answers when it comes to how we can reach our friends and our neighbours and the world with this great message of Jesus. But I am hoping and praying that our series in Acts will start a conversation among us that pushes us to work out together, you know, how can I reach my neighbours with the message of Jesus and how can you reach yours? These are conversations that, that we need to be having. But it needs to begin by getting our expectations right, by being sure of our convictions, because all the plans and strategies and skills and whatever that we have will be useless if I don't get that right first. Are we willing to give up our expectation of a comfortable, trouble-free life where everyone likes us? Are we convicted about the truth of this very good message that we have? Are we praying that God will give us boldness to speak it? If we are, then only God knows what he could achieve through our speaking uh, for the growth of his kingdom. So will you pray with me that God will give us this kind of boldness and work powerfully through us? I'm going to pray now and then we'll have a chance for questions. 
Heavenly Father, you do know um, the opposition that we face. We admit that it's not of the same level of the opposition that your apostles and these early believers faced, and yet it still is intimidating, Father. And so we do ask that you will give us uh, conviction about what we believe, that it is true, that it is important and good, that you are greater than the opposition that we face. And we do ask, Father, that you will so pour out your spirit among us to give us boldness that we do speak, that we don't shrink back when the opportunity arises. And we ask that as a result, you will bring many more people into your kingdom. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.